He is worthy of our worship, amen? My wife, Amy, and I love worshiping with you. Dan, choir, instrumentalist, thank you for beautiful music. The other day, someone prayed, Lord, I am tired. I'm frustrated with my life. Never time, period. There's never enough time to get all done that I wanna get done. You ever feel that way? Beat down by the to-do list that just won't quit? A casual look at the religion page in the newspapers or the religious posts on Facebook says quite a lot about the state of our church in America today. The sermon titles remind us that we live in an age of shallow cliches, warm and fuzzy fix-its, and easy pragmatism. How to have a happy marriage. How to raise happy teenagers. How to manage your happy money. How to develop, how to develop happy, healthy relationships. How to deal with stress in a happy workplace. Even if they're couched in other terminology, the number of how-to sermons being advertised and delivered is astounding. Many contemporary preachers are just spitting out pragmatic fix-it messages like they can fix just about anything. Reminds me of a, a story I once heard. John stopped by his friend's Bob, Bob's house one day in his pickup truck, and as John pulled up, Bob, his friend, noticed that a bracket was broken underneath the truck. The tailpipe was sort of rattling around loose, and Bob had just attained a new electric welder, about which he was very proud, very excited to use at the drop of a hat. And so he offered to, to fix the bracket, held the muffler, and John seemed grateful for the offer, and Bob set out to weld the broken piece. But the task wasn't easy. The position of the brake, along with Bob's inexperience, he was new at this, lack of skill, he, it made the repair difficult. As he proceeded to blunder along, John tried to look impressed and appreciative with what his buddy was doing to his truck. After a while, Bob turned to John, he said, hey, do you know how to weld? John admitted he did know a little about welding, but no sooner had the words left Bob's mouth than he remembered and was immediately mortified at the same time. His friend John, whose pickup he was blundering around on, taught industrial arts shop for 30 years. John not only knew how to weld, he had taught hundreds of students to weld. He had thousands of hours of experience on an electric welder. Who is it who really understands our lives? Who is it who really has the practical answers that we're looking for? In one sense, there is nothing wrong with pragmatic practical messages. Sometimes we might like them the best. And it's, I'm okay with you thinking the church can fix anything. But on the other hand, is this the centerpiece, the most important part of our faith? Here's the question for today. Why is it that in almost all of Paul's letters, there's only one sentence about marriage, and yet that's all that many pastors talk about. Have you thought about that? 
Speaking about marriage and, and money is important, but is it the most important? I've heard Dr. Batson say often, we have to be so careful to not allow the church to become the distributor of religious goods and services, but we must be careful to communicate the gospel story with which we have been entrusted. In 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian believers are dying to know some practical, pragmatic answers. They've sent him a letter asking questions about things that you and I might wanna know about, like marriage, sexuality, legal disputes, spiritual gifts, questions just like you might find posted about on Facebook in 2016. But here's the thing, for four chapters, it's as though Paul ignores their questions. Instead, there's all this business about the cross. In fact, he does this in almost every single letter he writes to a church. Why is that? Why put off the answer? I think this goes to the very heart of our faith, and the very heart of how you and I live our lives every day. I'm not sure I even understand the depths of this. Paul refuses to stoop to pragmatism alone in his preaching. He refuses to stoop to moralism, commanding people to do a whole bunch of things without giving them the power to do it. In fact, if you'll become nerdy with me for just a second, let's talk about the indicative and the imperative. We're about to make our high school English teachers very, very happy. The indicative mood involves statements of facts. It indicates things. The imperative mood involves commands. One tells us what is, the other commands us to do something. In the New Testament, the indicative almost always precedes the imperative. We'll never be commanded to do something until the writer has talked about all that Christ has done for us. There was a, a farm boy who got a white football for Christmas. He played with it a while and then accidentally kicked it over into his neighbor's yard. Well, the old rooster in the neighbor's yard ran out and looked at it and called all the hens to come see the white football. Now look here, the rooster said. I don't want you girls thinking I'm complaining about anything, but I just want you to see what the hens are coming up with next door. Perspective can change the way we live our lives, can't it? There's great psychological evidence that having some degree of optimism is good for our physical bodies. Being a glass half full person can lower blood pressure and fight heart disease. But what Paul is talking about is much more than just a change of perspective. Paul is inviting us into a new reality to live our lives beyond what we can see. In fact, we could call Paul's ministry a ministry of reality. He mostly declares what is in Christ. That's what he does. A whole lot more than telling us to do something, he's talking about what is already done in Jesus. Walter Cronkite used to get away with his signature line, and that's the way it is. This is precisely what the New Testament authors are trying to communicate with us. The way it is 
in Christ. Look down at verse 16. We have the mind of Christ. There's a new reality accomplished by Jesus. But that doesn't mean that we necessarily live in the mind of Christ. Let's see if you and I have the mind of Christ here in 1 Corinthians 2. The first thing I want us to see is that the mind of Christ is hidden from man and alien to human wisdom. The mind of Christ is hidden from man and alien to human wisdom. Look at verse seven of chapter two. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom from God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Socrates said that the only true wisdom is knowing that you know nothing. Maybe you felt like that before. How many of us are like Bob? Thinking we can fix our lives, we know all about them, we have great wisdom. And we are standing there with this welder in our hands that we just have barely begun to learn how to use. And we're smiling, saying, look at me. And yet the one who made us, who gave us our minds and our emotions, the one who took on flesh and dwelt among us, the one who is our high priest, able to sympathize with our weaknesses, he's an expert. And yet how many times do we grab the welder out of his hands, not even giving him an opportunity to show us what he knows? In our natural state, without Jesus in our lives, his mind is hidden from us. And even if it was revealed, it's alien to our way of thinking. We wouldn't even understand it if we could. In May of 1931, the most sensational manhunt that New York City had ever seen up to that point came to its climax. After weeks of searching two-gun Crowley, the killer gunman was finally trapped in his sweetheart's apartment on the top of a West End Avenue apartment building. 150 New York policemen and detectives lay siege to the, the top floor of his hideout. They chopped holes in the roof. They tried to smoke him out, but he wouldn't give up. They tear gassed him. He stayed in there. Finally, they mounted machine guns on the opposing buildings around this high rise and began just blanketing the apartment with machine gun fire. Crowley crouched behind an overstuffed chair and, and he survived. Tens of thousands of people watched from the streets below as this gunfight ensued and from the, the high rises neighboring. When Crowley was finally captured, the police commissioner said, I've never seen a man like this who will kill at the drop of a feather. He had killed police officers who just said something to him, just said hi. And here's the thing, how did Tugun Crowley regard himself? What was his view of the world? Well, as he, he was wounded and, and he wrote a note as he was in that apartment, it said this. Under my coat is a weary heart, but a kind one, one that would do nobody any harm. Isn't that sweet? Except that this guy had killed 
all kinds of people. In fact, this note is still in existence and it's even stained from his wound. When he was about to receive his final punishment, he said something similar. He said, well, this is what I get for trying to defend myself. The point of the story is this, Tugun Crowley didn't blame himself for anything. He was always the victim. He lived in a, a delusion, a fantasy. He couldn't see reality. And the truth is, without Christ, Paul is very clear. God's wisdom is hidden from us. We can't attain that level of seeing ourselves without his help. So in other words, the solutions that we will come up naturally to life's problems are often the very opposite of how God wants us to act. You heard the saying, your very best thinking got you into this mess. Your very best thinking got you into this mess. Our situation is a bit desperate. The wisdom we need is hidden from us and alien to our way of thinking. So how might we find it? Two, the mind of Christ is revealed in the cross. It's revealed in the cross. Look at verse two. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul is a little ironic saying he chose to know nothing. His letter is very eloquent. He deals with these tough problems in Corinth. In fact, when somebody saw I was preaching on Corinthians this morning, they went, oh, there's tough stuff in there. And yet think about this. He finds ways to answer these tough questions in the most beautiful fashion, such that brides will insist chapter 13 be in their wedding, won't they? all the time, it's one of the most popular chapters. Chapter 15 is often used on Easter Sunday and at funerals. Paul is wise, and yet he says he's got to focus only on one thing, or his perception of reality will be misaligned and off of what Jesus wants it to be. I determined to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. When a person decides whether or not to believe in and trust Jesus Christ with their lives. That person really has to make a pretty simple decision. Do I want to invite Christ into my life or not? Maybe you're here today or watching by way of television and you've been contemplating that very decision. Do I invite Christ into my life or not? To trust Jesus as the authority in my life is the most important decision any of us will ever make. And in many ways, what Paul is doing here is, a, is he's inviting us. Trust Christ. No one understands your life like he does. He knows what he's doing. Invite him in. Make him your Lord and your Savior. Trusting Christ is a first day with Christ question. But it's also an every day after that question. It's the front door to our faith, but it's also the floor of every room. I looked down at a prayer I had written and read, Lord, I am tired. This was just this week. I'm frustrated. There's never time. There's never enough time to get done all that I want to get done. As I looked at that prayer, I realized this is not the life Jesus has given me. 
He will give me time to do what he wants me to do, and the rest is up to him. Having the mind of Christ means living in the indicative mood, living in the reality of all that Christ has done already. He's done the heavy lifting. It's not about me being perfect. It's not about me getting all done I want done. It's about what does Christ have for me today? Paul, too, is saved by Jesus, but he also makes a focused attempt here to run every thought through the gospel, not just the first day, but every day. The mind of Christ is hidden from man. It's revealed in the cross. It's revealed, third, by the Holy Spirit. The mind of Christ is revealed by the Holy Spirit. Another way of thinking about what Paul is saying here is in terms of the Trinity. He's inviting us into the life of the Godhead. All wisdom is hidden from man and God the Father, but it's revealed in the Son and the Spirit. Look at verse 10 with me. And we'll read on to a part we haven't read yet. For to, to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Verse 11. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. I hope we can begin to see how extremely practical this really is. The Corinthian church has asked these difficult questions, sexuality, what to eat, what not to eat, how to stay unified, they're fighting, they're divided, and Paul takes all this time to not give them an answer. But instead, he shows them where to go for their answers. Think about that. He's telling them, I'm not just gonna give it to you. I wanna introduce you to the one who knows. I did a, a funeral yesterday for a master fly fisherman. Today, his children and grandchildren are master fly fishermen. If you heard the saying, teach a man to fish and you'll feed him for a lifetime, versus give a man a fish and you feed him for that day. Well, this man did that. He would carry his kids when they were young across streams in Colorado. And he would set them up on the perfect place on the bank where he knew they would catch fish. And he would watch each one of them delight in it and learn to love it. And as I sat with this family, you could see their love for fly fishing. Now, there was an occasional hook in the cheek, barb and all, or fish hook in the neck. In holding off and giving his answers to the questions he's been asked, the apostle is trying to communicate where all of us need to become experts at going for our answers. Can you remember the first time you had a sense that there is a spirit of God? A spirit, something I can't see, but he's here with me. It can be almost overwhelming to really realize that and begin to believe it. Well, a great deal of this letter deals with abuses of the Holy Spirit, but know this. 
Maybe right now, if you've never realized it, right now is your time to know the Spirit of God wants a relationship with you. Jesus promises where two or three have gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. Spirit of God is here in our midst, right now inviting me and you to know him for the first time or in a deep relationship. We need only invite him. Fourth, the mind of Christ is revealed through scripture. Notice in verse nine and verse 16 how Paul appeals to the Old Testament. We can see the authority that he yields to. The spirit will never contradict the written word of God. The spirit brought us the word of God. Spurgeon said, a great many learned men are trying to defend the gospel. No doubt it is a very proper and right thing to do, yet Spurgeon said, I always notice that when there are the most books on people trying to defend the gospel, it's because the gospel is not being preached. Spurgeon goes on, suppose a, a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, a full-grown king of beasts, there he is in his cage, and here come all the soldiers taking up their defensive positions around the lion to fight for him. Spurgeon says, I would suggest to them if they would not object, if it was not too humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back, open the door, and let the lion out. I think he's pretty capable of defending himself. Spurgeon is talking about the word of God. If we want to have the mind of Christ, it's been given to us. We need only let it loose on our lives. How many times per day are you asked advice? If you're a trustworthy person, maybe once a day. I imagine that all of us are asked advice at least once a week. Someone once said, we could save ourselves a lot of words if we'd only remember that people rarely take advice unless they have to pay for it. Do you know that billions of dollars are spent in our country alone every year on advice seeking? I think it's an important industry. I think a lot of people need advice. But before we give advice, we should ask these seven questions. Listen to this. Number one, is it biblical? Does it align with scripture? Is it factual, number two? Am I giving advice based on bad information? I have given advice and realized I know nothing about what I'm talking about. Giving welder advice to a 30-year veteran welder. Is it necessary? Do I need to speak? Is it teachable? Does my advice make me sound like God? Or am I too in a position of humility also learning? Does it acknowledge the imperfections of human counsel and the imperfections of me, number five? Number six, is it loving? This is huge and this will be the essence of, of Paul's answer in that great love chapter in 13, that, that in the end, church, Corinth, if you don't know what to do, do what's loving. And finally, seven, does my advice lead a person to the gospel? Or am I telling them a whole bunch of other things to add to their to-do list? 
Am I heaping on the burdens without giving the person any power to live? Paul wants every person in Corinth to know personally the Son of God, the Spirit of God, more than he wants to give them answers. The mind of Christ is hidden for man. It's revealed in the cross of Christ. It's revealed through Scripture and the Spirit. And finally, fifth, spiritual maturity is to demonstrate the mind of Christ in all matters. Spiritual maturity is to demonstrate the mind of Christ. When all this comes together, we're able to see that spiritual maturity means we begin to look and act like Christ. That's why the Christians were first called Christian, little Christ. They acted like him, they interacted like he did. Each of us is so different, complex mix of uh, emotions and real life situations that are so unique to each one of us. My wife is an expert in so many things that I blunder at. Harriet Schiff distilled her pain on some bad advice she was given in a book called The Bereaved Parent. Her young son had died during a routine operation, died on, on the table. And her clergyman afterwards, still in the hospital, took her aside. And he said, I know this is a painful time for you, but I know you will get through it all right because God never sends us more of a burden than we can bear. God only let this happen to you because he knows you are strong enough to handle it. It really happened to Harriet. She looked back at her clergyman and she said, so if I was a weaker person, my son would still be alive? Every pastor and even Christian who's been around very long sooner or later knows that there are times when the best thing to do is stop talking. What does Jesus do when Mary and Martha lost their brother? He stops talking. He weeps with them. He also raises Lazarus from the dead. I'm working on that one. But more than that, do we begin to see that people don't need me right now? They need Jesus. Paul will begin answering questions in chapter five. He starts off with maybe the hardest question of all in chapter five. But not before he invites the Corinthians to have their minds saturated in the gospel. And through the letter, he keeps coming back to this gospel-transformed way of thinking about the world. Our Father offers us the mind of Christ. More than some spiffy fact, the gospel bases all of our reality in what Jesus has already done for us. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He says in 118, right before this chapter, in our lives, we're going to experience mishaps and miseries, opportunities and blessings, bull markets and bear. And more than that, our lives will be characterized by how we respond to all of these opportunities. The question is, are our minds living out the gospel reality that Christ has accomplished almost everything that really needs to be accomplished in this world? I just get to be a part. The commercial interests in our world have a vested interest in telling us we need to consume more products to be okay. 
When we buy the last thing, another marketer, another business is there to tell us, well, you're actually still incomplete and really desperate until you buy this next thing. So-called friends can tell us we need to be more like them and have their things to be right and okay. The gospel tells us you are right already if you are in Christ, not because of you, because of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, who I mentioned earlier, was not always a saint. Um, he and Joseph Parker both had large churches in London in the 19th century. On one occasion, Parker commented on the, the poor condition of the children admitted to Spurgeon's orphanage there in London. Well, as gossip often does, it was distorted by the time it reached children. Parker was just feeling for the kids. He wanted better for them. By the time it came to Spurgeon, he heard that Parker had criticized the orphanage. The next week, Spurgeon got up in his pulpit and he blasted Parker. The attack was printed in the newspapers. It became the talk of town. People went to Parker's church the next week just to say, see how he would rebuttal Spurgeon. What was he gonna say? He stood up and he said, I understand Dr. Spurgeon is not in his pulpit today. and This is the Sunday usually they take an offering for the orphanage. I suggest today we take an offering here instead for those children. Well, the crowd was delighted, maybe some convicted. Spurgeon's biographer said that the ushers had to empty the collection plates three times that morning. Later that week after Sunday, there was a knock at Parker's study and it was Spurgeon. He said, you know, Parker, you have practiced grace on me. You've given me not what I deserved, you have given me what I needed and you have given me a lot better than I gave you. The gospel turns us upside down and all around. Grace gets in and it infects the way we look at life. We're not perfect still, but it changes us. And if we know Jesus, his mind of grace begins to be in us. Church family, visitors this morning, those watching by way of television, do you know personally this Jesus of grace? Have you allowed the spirit of the living God to change your heart and your mind? Are you continually allowing the gospel to transform your mind, believers? Sometimes I sure don't. But it's a blessing to remember that Christ has already paid for all that. Can I not just today live in what he has done for me. Let's pray together. Well, Father, maybe there is someone here who really hasn't ever met you and begun to know your grace-filled way of thinking. Oh, Jesus, may today be their day. If not to come down the aisle in front of the church, would they in the private of their Sunday school classroom or in the private of their home, invite you in and allow you to be their Lord. In the name of Christ we pray and asking for his mind today, 